All right, let's open our Bibles tonight, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. John was in his 90s when he was, because of the persecution for being a believer, was exiled to an island 32 miles off the coast of Turkey today, Ephesus, or Kudasi as it's called today. And, and I think John probably thought this was the end of his life. He was in his mid-90s, but it was there that God isolated him to speak to him and gave them this wonderful revelation of the final things, everything that's that needed to be fulfilled and concluded that God had spoken is all found in this book. Without this book, we don't really know how everything ends up, and we have to take God's word for it. He'll do it, but he hasn't laid it out for us as he is, has in this book. So after an introduction, John uh, greets the churches. He is given a glorified uh, vision of the glorified Jesus, the one that would now see us one day. The unveiling is what the word revelation means, to pull back the covers. By the time you get to chapter 1, verse 19, <clears throat> Jesus gives the outline to John of the book. Write the things that you see, and then the things that are, the church age, and then the things which will be hereafter. So the church age is covered in chapter 2 and 3, these seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches in Asian Minor of that first generation. And then the things that follow are after the church age, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1 with the rapture of the church and the words metatauta, or after these things. So we've been going through these letters, and they're unique because <clears throat> this is really Jesus' only first-person words to us, to the church. This is his understanding, his feeling, his desire, his explanation, his challenges, his rebukes, his commendation for the church. Because all of these seven churches that are addressed here from Asia Minor existed in the same generation, we can easily conclude that God intends for every generation to hear these words. Um, different churches will fit into these different uh, outlines, certainly. From a prophetic point, and, and by the way, that's the way we should read them and take them. They are written to individuals in the body of Christ, and we should listen to them that way. From a prophetic standpoint, however, the way that the churches present themselves from one to seven also give us a kind of a broad overview of the church from its birth uh, on Pentecost until the coming of the Lord for the church in the rapture when the church age is finished. And so Ephesus historically represents the first generation of the church to about 100 AD. So really three generations. And, and the, the message of, from the Lord to that church was, you're pretty busy, but your motivation has now no longer been that you love me. You're busy, but not for the right reasons. And so he challenged their motivation. The Smyrna church, which was the second letter that we looked at last week, is a church that historically it was represented from 100 to about 312 AD, <clears throat> a bloody time in the church's history. Ten different emperors um, took the lives of some seven million believers. It is horrible to read the history. Uh, but they endured, and they were faithful to the end, and the Lord promised to give them a crown of life. And, and I should say, there are plenty of churches like Smyrna around the globe today, in China and other places in the Mideast, where, where Christians are still suffering tremendously for their faith. There have been several pastors that have been killed this year uh, in the Sudan, as churches are, are gathering together, and, and you know whatever military attempts to be in charge at the time, they tend to kill people just to take control and so not everyone has it as easy as we do, but from a historic standpoint, in, in the history of the church, certainly Smyrna represents that time of Roman persecution. 
Tonight, our third letter of Pergamos in verse 12 through verse um, 17, Jesus will talk to a, a church who represents, is represented historically from 313 or so BC, uh, AD, sorry, through the end of the fifth century. And it was really a time when Constantine uh, came to power, if you will, and he took the church in as the church religion or, or as the state religion. If, if you read the history of the early church, Constantine um, and um, Licinius were two men that were vying for power over the Roman Empire. And Licinius, though he was a more conservative guy, was also a pagan, a real hateful man. Uh, Constantine was a religious guy, like the world kind of religious guy, and very, very liberal at that. Well, as the fighting took place, Constantine uh, won the battle. He, he said later that he had prayed that if the Lord would give him victory, he would convert to Christianity, as would everyone under his power. And that's exactly what happened. He won. <clears throat> he made a public confession of his faith in Christ. He never walked with Jesus, not for five minutes. And as the years that followed would show, he ruined the church in many ways, worse than persecution ever could have. His confession of faith historically rocked the empire. The empire had for 215 years been slaughtering Christians. Over a 12-month period, as he took over the Roman Empire as, a, as the ruler, as the emperor, um, every priest from um, Jupiter and Saturn and every cult member were baptized into the state church, Christianity. And the, the doors began to be opened to the state religion run by the state. And you can imagine how that go. Every pagan practice, every pagan belief, every pagan celebration was all put under um, one, umbrella, one umbrella declared by Constantine as the will of God. So the church finds it since there, found itself in very kind of, you know, <laughs> compromised, if you will, watered down. It wouldn't be long, and if you track back all of the pagan holidays that we even celebrate today, most of them were rooted in Babylonian kind of religions, the ways of Nimrod that the Lord judged. Uh, as In fact, he'll judge as the great harlot in Revelation chapter 17 when we get there. Satan's counterfeits uh, were being Christianized, if you, if you will. For the first time in any, anyone's memory, though, if you read history, no one was being slaughtered. The catacombs were empty. No one was dying, you know, in the Colosseum. So for many people, this was, woo, good. You know, now we're being accepted. But the worst thing was taking place than the, the persecution that Smyrna can speak to. The church was filling with the world in its ways. And what had kept Smyrna or the church pure for 200 plus years, persecution, um, now gave way to, you know, everything goes. It used to be where every saint died, five more would take their place, but now, you know, the doors were just open and there's no commitment to the things of God at all. But from a singular standpoint, there are plenty of churches like that even around today. When Satan discovers that he cannot destroy the work of God or the people of God from persecution from without, his natural tendency and his plan is to join the church and ruin it from within. And that certainly has been a winning formula, especially when it came to compromise. In fact, all of this movement in our culture today towards a one-world government and a one-world religion and a one-world kind of monetary system are all leading us to those days of 
you know, the Antichrist coming to rule and reign. You've probably seen those coexist bumper stinkers. But if you know that the first guy on the list wants to kill the last guy on the list, it really is not going to work too well. But that's the way the world kind of looks at it. So politically, you know, uh, even our politicians, they lay their hands on their Bible. They, they, they put a picture of themselves on TV in church, and then they vote to massively fund abortion. Uh, there's a religion, all right. It's a state religion. It has nothing to do with God at all. But that is not new. That was true in the first century. It was certainly um, brought to life in, in the days of Constantine as well. The belief today, as it was then, that you can have peace when all other religions of the world come together and find things that they'd like to hold in common. Uh, so the Antichrist is already at work. Just look at what it did to the church in the days of Constantine. Satan got a foothold in the church. The church began to uh, deteriorate rapidly. And this letter from Jesus is completely unlike the last letter that we read, where there was nothing but a com uh, commendations and blessings and promises and, and promises of strength. Here is uh, a church that has, has fallen into compromise with the world. All of the letters, and we've mentioned it to you, and I'll mention it to you for seven times since there's seven letters, all follow the same formula as far as the way, the way that they were presented. Um, they are, are, we are given a destination. We are given a description of Jesus from chapter one that John saw that, that, that affects or applies to the letter that is being written. It, it is followed by a commendation, a blessing, or an acknowledgement of good. It is then followed by a rebuke or an exhortation and finally a warning or a promise. Every one of these is written to the angelos. Angelos is the, is the word for angel, but it is also the word for messenger. It is written to the pastors of these churches, chapter 1, verse 20, um, that the Lord wants the word to get out to them through uh, the spiritual leadership of this local assembly. So tonight, the the, the letter of the, of the, of the angel or, or the... To the angel of the church in Pergamos, verse 12, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. When Babylon fell in 539 B.C. to the Medo-Persians, the Babylonian priests, which were called Magians, really magicians without the sea, moved the center of their operation to Pergamos. It became the place uh, for these uh, cultic kind of priests. Pergamus was about 75 miles north on a map of Smyrna, where Caesar was being worshipped. In, in Pergamus, one of the largest uh, temples was, was made out to the god of healing, whose symbol was those two intertwined serpents. You might see that on medical symbols for today. It was very satanic in those days. Um, and there stood in Pergamus one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Zeus, which in the front rose some 800 feet in the air. Can you imagine? So in this city, God birthed a group of believers. We don't know where they came from necessarily. We can guess, but we don't know. And it is to them that Jesus now writes, a church that had begun to drift in spiritual compromise and spiritual adultery, where Satan's religions were running rampant around them. And eventually, by the decree of, of Constantine, the doors would have to be open to all of these practices and brought 
within. There were some folks in this church who were doing well, surprisingly enough. When Paul said to the Corinthians, come out from among them and be separate, and I'll be a father to you, don't touch what is unclean, and I'll receive you. There were some who, in the midst of all of this idolatry, remained steadfast. But most of the folks in the church were content to live between two worlds. They were trading off convictions and truth for an easier life. And they were fitting in just fine. As a result, the Pergamos church had large attendance with few believers. The place was packed. It is these Jesus will threaten to come against in verse 16 and fight against with the word of his mouth, the word of God. These folks that were in the church building but were not part of the church body. It's a pretty powerful letter. So Jesus describes himself in this letter by by the description of having the two-edged sword. You you saw that in chapter 1, I think, verse 16. John saw that that he had his right hand had seven stars out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. We will read in in Hebrews chapter 4 that this Sharp two-edged sword is nothing more than the word of God. Jesus being the word of God made flesh, if you will. And so the Lord speaks to this church that is let the word of God kind of be set aside. And he said, I'm going to come against you with my word. The word that according to Hebrews can cut between the soul and the spirit, the, 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 the man's works with his motives, his, his heart along with his practice. These are the words that are coming from Jesus' mouth. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, it is the sword out of the mouth of Jesus that will make an end to the battle of Armageddon in just moments. You know, Satan will gather with all of his troops and countries to fight against God. The one last, you know, we're going to take over now. And I think Jesus is just pretty much going to say it's over and it'll be over because that's who he is. So Jesus uses this title to introduce himself, to tell us that everything we do and everything we say is the subject to and in the scrutiny of his word, his knowledge. Much of what was going on in this church wasn't of the Lord at all. But, But here's a tragedy, that there could be churches that are regularly practicing things that are completely contrary to what God has to say. That's a tragedy. People getting up, let's go to church and do everything God hates. But this is what was going on here. So the destination, Pergamus, the the description of Jesus, he's the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Their commendations, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you have held fast or you hold fast to my name. You do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Outwardly, you might say, if you look at this whole description, that this would be a church that had would have little praise. <laughs> like, what in the world can we salvage here? Yet Jesus found some faithful ones, and he knew them, standing firm in the faith, and he writes this to every letter, right? In every letter, I know your works. And, and we mentioned it you know, each time now that you know, God knows what you're up to and he knows why you're doing what you're doing. 
and he knows and sees through all of your actions and your motives, and, and certainly we, beyond that, um, Hebrews says there is no creature hidden from his sight. He just knows, right? So tonight, God knows all about you. That can be a good thing or frightening, depending, I think, on where you are with him. So the Lord said, I know your works. But he says it in a good way, right? He, he's pointing out those who were faithful in, in, in the difficult place in which they found themselves. You dwell even where Satan's throne is. I know what you're facing there in Pergamos. I know the difficulty that you have walking with me, serving me in such a spiritually demonic environment where Satan is ruling, <laughs> where the devil is in power. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty shocking way to describe a place for a church to be built, a difficult place to serve. In fact, he, he talks about where Satan lives twice in this one verse. He says it twice. Sounds much like today to me. We live in the devil's backyard. He is on the throne of many people's lives to his delight and, and, and their dismay. But God knows your circumstance. So he says in the worst of places, Pergamos, where Satan is, has such the upper hand, you have held fast to my name. There were folks in this church, so there were a few of them serving the Lord in a town filled with the worship of Zeus and, and Caesar and others. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. Jesus was aware that there were those folks who are standing fast. And I don't know, it may very well get more difficult in the years to come here to walk with Jesus outwardly. You may just become very marginalized. <laughs> it, it seems like it's happening already. Um, doesn't change our strategy. We're preaching the God of God's word, and God is ever powerful. But still, it may cost you something more than maybe it would have 50 or 60 years ago. Notice that the Lord says, I know your works, where you live, where Satan lives, and that you haven't denied my faith. These guys had not compromised what they knew about the Lord, and they stuck with it. They believed in the virgin birth, Although 50% of seminaries in our country today teach that that's not necessarily true. But the Bible says it is. The deity of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the need to be born again. The unwillingness on their part to engage in the abominations and in the idolatry. Look, here was, a, here was a big church with a lot of people in it that had a very faithful minority that blessed the heart of God who took notice that it cost them plenty to bless him. The truth ought to keep us from, um, or, or this truth, I should say, should keep us from denying the possibility of some truly people being born again in churches that maybe don't have much Bible teaching. You know, you look and you shake your head, and, and yet there's folks there that know the Lord and love the Lord, and they're not growing much, they're not getting fed very well, but at the same time, God has a way, you know, and so hidden under the idolatry of men, you know, you find folks that are, are flourishing. I, I grew up as a Catholic. The Catholics have a lot of weird practices. Went to parochial school for 12 years. That's where I lost my hair. <laughs> the priests pulled it out. No, they didn't. But my grandma, who was a lovely Catholic woman, loved Jesus more than anyone I knew. She didn't know I have a great grasp of the scriptures, but she had a great grasp of God's grace. So I fully expect to see her in heaven. Um, 
I'm sure that most of you in our church are saved, although I'm sure that some of you are not, just the way the numbers work. And hopefully we're not leading you astray and challenging you to come to Jesus. Their faith, these folks, had remained strong even in the days when, when Antipas was killed as a martyr. So they had gone after the church, and it was a well-known gentleman in the church that everyone seemed to know. If it was in the days of Constantine, it would have been almost impossible to be killed for your faith because he protected that. But everyone had been willing to stand up when the cost was great. No one backed down. No one backed away. Uh, the historians and everything I've ever read from the from those centuries and even the first century, um, there's no mention of this man in any historical books that I can find. God knows his name. <laughs> I like that. By the way, his name Antipas means to stand by yourself or to stand against alone. So in the Fervigans Church, there were a few faithful to commend, planted in a town, given over to Satan, but God knows those that are his, and he, he, he blesses them, he's using them, he commends them. But he says in verse 14, as he then turns from the commendation to the rebuke, but <clears throat> I have a few things against you as a whole, as a church, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Despite the courage of the few, most of this church was headed towards things that would say they didn't know the Lord and their ideas and their ways were rather leading people astray. Satan wasn't ruining this church as a roaring lion. He was ruining this church as a deceiving serpent. And the leadership and the congregation were allowing doctrines and practices that Jesus hated. I have a few things against you. This is, this is not something that pleased the Lord. And, and that they compromised God's word. And he picks two things out in particular to speak about, beginning with the doctrine of Balaam. I'm sure you've, if you've been around for a while, you've read Balaam's story. It is found in Numbers 22 through 25. And then he shows up again towards the end for his death in Numbers chapter 21. He was a Gentile prophet. He was gifted by God to be able to speak in the name of the Lord, to be given vision and understanding. <clears throat> and yet he used those gifts from God and tried to prostitute them for gain. In this case, in the story in our Bibles, by responding to a fellow named Balak, who was the king of the Moabites at a time when Israel by the millions were pouring out of Egypt, headed for the land of promise and passing through the Moabite land. And the king didn't know what to do about them. He, he certainly couldn't seem to fight them off. There were too many of them. And so he hires this prophet, in air quotes, <laughs> to come out and to curse the people so that they might go away. Well, the Lord told him not to do it. First told him not to go then told him not to say anything that he didn't tell him. Then he had a donkey talk to him, and that didn't seem to dissuade him either. And then he begged the Lord, please let me just tell him, he's offered me a lot of dough, I got his check here, all he has to do is sign it. Nothing dissuaded this crooked prophet 
from trying to gain from his gifts. So he finally devised a way to get around God's warning to not curse the people. He, in fact, when he opened his mouth, blessings would only come out. God wouldn't let him curse. So he called Balak. He said, look, God won't let me curse them. But I know what will make him angry, so he'll curse them for you. Get them involved in idolatry. Draw them into your, in your pagan temples to, to have, you know, relations, sexual relationship with the temple prostitutes. Draw them in. Have your young ladies and young men. Reach out to the young kids there amongst the Jews and, and invite them over. Get them involved. And their own God will turn against them. And it worked because God is holy. And so this horrible counsel from Balaam, and the doctrine was fairly simple. You can have the people of God destroyed by having them compromise with the religious practices around them. Get them to intertwine what they know with what they shouldn't know. Get them to hook in with the world and the way that the world worships, and God will, will judge them and deal with them. And like I said, it worked. The Jewish men were given meat to eat that were offered to idols. They committed fornication in, in, in their compromise. God began to judge. In, in Numbers 25, it said in one day, in, in judgment, 24,000 people died of God's people in that rebellion. God poured out judgment. More followed as Moses sought to restore the people to the Lord. Here in the church of Pergamos, the motto was, there's nothing wrong with being friendly with Rome. Hey, Christians, there's nothing wrong with being friends of the world. We got to fit in, you know, can't we all just get along? And the answer is no, you cannot all get along. Not biblically. Not if you're going to walk with Jesus in a world that's not your home. The church history would reveal that under Constantine, most pagan practices wormed their way into the church, ultimately began to develop the belief systems of the church, and it wasn't long before there was a church that lived itself completely contrary to God's word. It worked, but it also destroyed. It wasn't long before in the church you'll find statues made and worshipped. The very fact that way back in Exodus, the Lord had said, don't make any carved images, don't make them in the likeness of anything that's under heaven or upon the earth or in the water. Just don't make anything to worship in front of. He said to them in Leviticus chapter 26, don't make a carved image or a sacred pillar or don't engrave stones in your land to bow down. I'm the Lord. You want a relationship with me, not with some idol. Don't let your heart be deceived. Don't turn from one God and worship to another God to worship. The, the dead began to be prayed for. The people of God began to compromise. And it, wouldn't, it really wasn't long before compromise filled the church. And... and I think you wouldn't have to look very far to find churches today that are filled with people that are absolutely believing things that are contrary to the Bible. And it's, this is God's letter to the church, those who would belong to him. When Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 1, he said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And then it has a comma, and it says like a bird or a four-footed animal or a creeping thing, they profess themselves to be wise. Well, here in, in Pergamos, that was certainly an issue. They had the, the, the doctrine of Balaam. Just mix and admixed what you know with what you shouldn't know, 
and find yourself in, in absolute you know, rebellion, if you will, against God. God calls you and I to be separate. Second Corinthians chapter, come out from among them, be separate. Hagios, it's the word for, for holy, right? Or exclusive use. Be sure that you're exclusively available to the Lord and to no one else. In John chapter 15, the Lord had warned about the world hating you because it hated him. And he'd chosen us out of the world, not to be in the world, but to be out of it. When the council of, of Jerusalem gave their counsel, when, when the big fight early on in the, in the book of Acts was, can a Gentile get saved without first becoming a Jew? And this whole issue of grace and, and going to the Lord by faith was, was on the front line. And to be honest with you, a lot of Jewish Christians said, oh, you got to be a Jew first. We're God's people. And it took a while to get through all of that, right? You can read that in the book of Acts. But when the council in, in, in chapter 15 of Acts got together and they began to talk about um, what they could do or what they couldn't do, what they should uh, you know, enforce, if you will, and what they shouldn't enforce, they, they spoke and they, they said, and it's really, I think it's actually recorded in chapter 21 when there's a, a review of that decision, but it says, we've decided that we should write no law to the Gentiles except that they should stay away from things that have been offered to idols and blood and things strangled and stay away from sexual immorality, or if you will, big picture, just stay away from associating with the worship of these false gods. Break away. <laughs> You know, you're not supposed to be there at all or involved at all. Through compromise, the church in the time of Constantine was acceptable to the state. Persecution stopped. The church began to financially thrive and grow strong. And it wasn't very long before it became a political power and a political force in the land. It went from serving the Lord to to walking away entirely. By the way, the root of the word Pergamus is to, the word means married, but the way that it is written here, it, it stands for polygamy. It's where the root word is polygamy. In other words, here's a church married to more than one suitor. Their devotion is not just to the Lord. We're, we're engaged to be married to Jesus, right? Second Corinthians 11. I've, 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 I've engaged you to one. I want to present you as a chaste virgin to the Lord one day. But this church had gotten involved with the world like a harlot. I think we as Christians kind of face that same challenge a little bit today. You know, peace at all cost, no matter how much of God's word and his ways you have to sacrifice to, to gain an audience, to be contemporary, to boost attendance, to get enough likes, <laughs> to be acceptable. It's a lot of junk being taught out there in the, you know, in, in the world. People who say they know the Lord, pastor, reverend, wrong pal. God's word is pretty clear for us. So in the process of avoiding the Roman sword, they encountered the sword of Jesus in his mouth, the two-edged sword. Because love at the expense of truth isn't love at all. If you really love someone, tell them the truth in love. The way, of, the way of the Lord is narrow, and we have to guard it from polluting the doctrines of Jesus with the ways of the world. Jesus wants a faithful bride. I can't begin to tell you how often when our, we as church leadership is 
you know, have contact with the world. For example, we don't marry unbelievers. We won't do the service. Because <laughs> I don't think you have a hope just to find what God's life really is for you unless you're saved. So we just say we're not doing any weddings. We'll bury anyone because they're dead. So I'll just go preach to anybody. Hey, you want to hear about Jesus, man? But I won't marry people that aren't saved. And, and, and we've had people leave the church, write me nasty letters. and um, Sometimes we will say, look, a divorce for you is wrong, and people will just leave angry. Sometimes we have asked people to step out of ministry because according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, they're not walking with God at all. They're not around the church. Well, who do you think you are? Well, I'm the pastor. Well, as it gives you the right to tell me that. Well, I'm telling you, it's my job. It doesn't always have, you know, you don't always make friends. But look, we should together fight for the purity of the church. Do the best we can. I mean, we're, at best, we're a bunch of sinners just hanging on by the skin of our teeth, right? By grace. But the church in, in, in Pergamos, they loved the doctrine of Balaam. They willfully ignored the will of God and the word of God and defied the word of God in the hopes of gaining for themselves. And they began to worship in ways that God hadn't allowed and had even condemned. And instead of taking a stand, they became chameleons. They just changed, you know, to fit their surrounders, surroundings. So I'm sure though few here had a good confession of faith, Jesus mentions them, I'm sure those poor folks were reviled in this congregation. I'm sure they were looked at you know, through slanted eyes and, and kind of nodded heads. The, the, the immorality, the idolatry, the paganism, and it became the life of the church. It was like, hey, we do that too. We're, oh, we love you, and we love God. The, the call to being um, pure and holy and separate from the world wasn't a call that was heard from this pulpit. Yet God's standards don't change, ever. Hey, what's the difference? You get into the right generation, dude. All right. <laughs> but he still doesn't change. Well, everyone's doing it. Yeah, and God still hates it. So, the doctrine of Balaam is still condemned. The liberal practices of the heathen, apart from the preaching of God's word, is still unacceptable. What, what Balaam advised Balak to do brought God's judgment to bear. Don't try that. Don't compromise. Don't, don't throw yourself in with the world just to get what you want. Do things God's way. And how many people will we offend in the process? I don't know. We don't baptize babies because that's not in the Bible. We don't approve of homosexuality. It's not in the Bible. Well, it's in the Bible, but not in a good way. We think marriage should be for life. We only pray to Jesus. You're all saints, if you know him. Yet I'm not putting any of you on my dashboard. <laughs> We're not holier than thou. We just want to be obedient to him. It's not holier than thou. We're just trying to hang on and do things right. So this church needed to say to itself, what practices and beliefs do we hold that's not biblical, but they're just comfortable? You know, the moral guide in the church today is, is all over the place. 
But we're in the world. We still want to be of the world. We want to be of the Lord. And the church is to hold up the standards of Jesus, who has a two-edged sword. He can bless or he can cut. <laughs> but he's going to have his way. So that was one issue that he was angrier with, with his church. He had against them. He hates this doctrine of Balaam, who figured out a way to, to stumble the kids just to get a paycheck by mixing their devotion to spiritual things. There's a God, but he was redefined by these idolaters, and it brought great judgment. Verse 15, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The word Nicolaitans comes from two Greek words, the word Nike, or Nike, and the word Laos. Uh, Nike means to conquer. Laos means laity. The two words together define what was going on even in, early on in the, in the church, and that was the establishment of a spiritual hierarchy or priesthood within the church. And God hated it. These were the holier ones, the more righteous ones, the ones closer to God. If you need forgiveness, you should go to them because they'll speak to God for you. You're too sinful to go for yourself. You just let them go for you which, by the way, was part of the Babylonian system. The Lord said he hates it. He say hated it in verse 6 of this chapter when he wrote uh, to the Ephesians and said, you hate that, and so do I. He says it again here. It was an issue and a problem in the church, and I guess it has always been some problem in the church. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to open the door for all of us to be able to come to the Lord, to approach God. At his death, an 18-inch veil that hung over the Holy of Holies was torn by the Lord from top to bottom. He opened the path into his presence. He did so through the blood of his son who died in our place. Jesus paid the price so that you could have fellowship with God. He's the way in and the only way in. It cost the Lord his son to bring you life. Paul said to the Hebrews in chapter 4, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we can find mercy and help in times of uh, grace and, and help in times of need. So why does God hate this erection of or, or establishment of a priesthood in the church? It's because it places someone in Jesus' position. He's the only mediator. He's the only door. He's the only way in. And the minute you put someone else between you and the Lord, besides Jesus, you're, you're taking his glory away. And you're discounting his work. And you're replacing him with someone that really doesn't deserve to stand there. So we only have one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus. Catholic Church I grew up with, Greek Orthodox Church as well. Most of the shepherding movements across America over the last couple of decades all violate this. Just so you know, God hates it. God hates it. He died so that we might find our access to the Father directly. Jesus appointed 12 apostles who brought forth by the Spirit the doctrines that we believe in. He raises up in the church elders and deacons. It's the only two organizational offices, by the way, in God's structure of the church. There aren't a hundred of them. There's elders and deacons, those who care for the spiritual well-being and for the temporal or, or physical well-being of the church. 
Those are the only two categories because that should all be out of the way. It should all lead us to Jesus. He wants to get glory. He shares it with nobody. And that's the way that should be. He's alone, the mediator. So the Lord says to this church, yeah, you got a bunch of priests running around and, and hierarchy and, and people, I'll go talk to this guy and that guy will help me out. And God hates it because don't you get in Jesus's way? Don't you try to sit in his, in his seat? He's the Lord. I'm going to Jesus. Sometimes people come visit church and go, you guys talk about Jesus a lot. I go, yeah, I know. Is that anything else you talk about? I, say, I don't see there's a need for that. Go, He's the only one, you know. <laughs> He's the only one. So, I have a few things against you. The compromising doctrines, the establishment of a spiritual hierarchy. So repent, verse 16. Repent or else. Oh, man. I think when some, my dad used to say, or else, it scared me. If the Lord says it, I'm, I'm totally frightened. <laughs> Repent or else. I'm going to come quickly and I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Oh, my. A strong word, repent. You don't find that a lot in today's preaching places. But if the world's ever going to do what, hear the, the gospel from us, we're going to have to be repentant people. Right? The word repent, metanoia, means to turn around. Without putting it in the Bible, it just means do a 180. When it's in the Bible, it means turn from your ways to his ways, from your plans to his plans. Just just go his way. Stop doing what you're doing and head in the direction he wants you to be in. So, <laughs> or else. Or else my word is going to be your, your judgment. God knows how to separate the chaff from the wheat, the saints from the ain'ts. <laughs> When will he come to do that? I don't know. But the council's pretty clear. You have, you, you're on, you've play, been placed on warning, right? Or your days are numbered. Do you know how many ecumenical movements there are in America today that seeks to bring people of different faiths together for the sake of unity while ignoring God's standard of holiness? We get calls sometimes for churches that want to all get together and like the pastors associate. Could you come and join us and I look, and the lesbian pactor, you know, there's people that are into this. And I say, I'm not coming. That's not a group I want to belong to. Bro, we just want to all get together, you know. Well, that's fine. Why don't you come over here, and I'll talk to you about Jesus. But I ain't coming to hang around with you just for the sake of unity. We need to, we need to preach the gospel. It can't be unity without truth. And so <laughs> be careful. God's not interested in that type of unity either. Repent or else. He who has ears to hear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, I pointed out to you each week the word let he, he who has an ear to hear is singular. It means God speaks to the individual. And then the word churches is plural because he speaks to us collectively. So listen to what God is saying. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you tonight. You're in this church. Maybe the church is doing all right, but you're not doing well. Or maybe the church isn't doing well, but you're fine. We should hear. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. He who overcomes, in every letter, the overcomer is the true believer, right? The one who has weathered the storm and walked with God. 
Well, here's some promises from the Lord. He'll give you some of the hidden manna to eat. For 40 years, the Lord fed the children of Israel in the wilderness from, with, head, with bread from heaven. When they arrived in the land of promise, they placed a jar of manna. And by the way, the word manna means, what is it? What is it? I don't know. It tastes pretty good. Like a crispy cream donut, from what I can tell. I can't imagine how bad that would be. But it was placed into the Ark of the Covenant, a type of the throne of God, um, versus Satan's seat, where all of the, you know, the food was eaten and set before him and worshipped. Jesus compares himself to this bread in John chapter 6. He said, I am that bread that came down from heaven. If you eat of me, of it, you will not die, you'll live. I'm the living bread which came down to him, and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, and I will give it for the life of the world. So, you follow Christ, you repent, you look to him, you're going to have eaten of the Lord, you're going to have participated of him, you'll have received him, and as a result, Will, you're going to live. When judgment comes, you're going to live. You're going to escape judgment. To those who remain faithful to him, one day they will be fed this eternal bread and they'll attend the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then something else, and it is only mentioned here, you'll get a white stone. Now, at least in the, in the first century, most judges in their courtrooms to give a verdict pulled out of a bag or out of a, a bottle a stone. Black meant you were guilty and, and white meant you were innocent or declared so where the expression blackballed came from, right? You're guilty. Jesus declares our forgiveness and acceptance with God, and if we look to him, not only will we eat of the manna, we'll be declared innocent, right? We will stand before God. And then he will give to us this white stone representing our innocence in him, and on it a stone, <laughs> a new name, on that stone a new name. Sometimes when I go to places that are formal where you have to wear like ties and stuff, People call me reverend. <laughs> I know, you laugh and so do I. <laughs> or they'll call you pastor. Some people that know me call me other things. My wife usually calls me honey. Very good. Kids call me dad. What will Jesus call you? I don't know. But it's a loving, endearing thing because only you and he know. It's, it's private, isn't it? It's between you and him. It speaks of a, a, an intimacy that, that you can't really replace or share. The Lord has a nickname for you. I don't know what it'll be, but I know you're getting one, and it'll be a tender word for his beloved bride known only to her. I'm looking forward to that. How about you? And I'm not going to tell you what it is. So compromise. It, it is a dangerous threat to the church, compromising your doctrines, which, by the way, suggests that you don't know them. You should know what you believe and why. But mixing them with idolatry or perversion or somehow in, 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 an, in an effort to, to get ahead or to be acceptable or to, to fit in, you just, you just compromise. But look, this is no place to fit in. I want to be sure I, I'm looked at you know, as, as weed and not a tear. I want to be in a place where the Lord can bless. So, 
that and the establishment in any church for a hierarchy. You come to me, I'll go to Jesus. It's ridiculous. I've, I've worked really hard over my life just to prove to people that anybody can be a pastor. <laughs> just look at me. It was a sad time historically, though, when Constantine stopped the persecution for a much more deadly problem, and the problem was compromise. Soon the bishop of Rome, by the way, it wouldn't take 30 but 30 years, would claim that he was a descendant from the apostles, and the papacy would be born in earnest. It came out of Constantine's reign. Dark days for the church. In fact, by the time you get to the 5th century, which is about when those effects seem to change a little bit, um, the 5th century was called the Dark Ages for a reason. It was dark. So here's our challenge as Christians. We need to stand for the Lord in a world without compromise. Sin is sin. God hates what God hates. God loves what God loves. We should be filled with mercy and grace and not, you know, I don't want to be a sin sniffer, runs around, hey, look at that's wrong and that's wrong. Hey, the Bible says. No, I, still people get saved, you know. They need to know about Jesus' love. But once we come to know the Lord, we should try to do it right to the best of my ability and to, to the best of yours. Without compromise, uh, we don't want to compromise. We need to be careful. So, Pergamos, not a church we want to be like. Next week, we will take up Thyatira. So, read ahead. You got a little bit more verses to read next week. As the Lord continues to speak to the church about the things that are on his heart. Motivation, standing up under persecution, falling for compromise, and next week, corruption. Father, tonight as we sit together, we certainly do want to be a church that loves you and pleases you. That if you look at us tonight, gathered here in this fellowship hall or sitting over in the old fellowship hall or maybe just watching online from home, Lord, we don't want to be a church that has lost its witness and lost its way and lost its light because we've determined that somehow fitting in is far better. Not that we want to be antagonistic or problematic or always rocking the boat, but we certainly, without shame and without apology, want to speak up for you in love. Stand our ground in love. Be in a place where the Lord can bless. Hagias, stand alone, stand apart. Stand only for you. And I hope that describes your life tonight. I hope that that's a life that you're living. You're not compromising with the world. You're not looking to find ways around what God has said. You're not you're not looking to discount what the Lord's advice is because somehow it doesn't help your lifestyle. But rather that you, knowing he loves you so, embrace what he says as being good for you, as being for you, not against you, to give you a blessing, to bring goodness into your life, to surround you with the goodness of God. That's the only reason a, a parent would, would chastise their children whom they love, so the Lord with us. The world will sell you a bill of goods. Your friends will tell you otherwise. The, 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 the newspaper, the internet, Facebook, <laughs> they'll tell you what to believe and how to believe. 
but they have an agenda and it has nothing to do with you. God has an agenda. He wants to bless your life. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to, to give you and to take care of you and to use you and then one day to bring you home. May we not ever find the word compromise in our testimony. Stand up for what you believe and stand still. You don't have to be a problem, but you certainly don't want to be a pushover. You don't have to be antagonistic, but you have to be strong. So the Lord's word tonight to the church. Help us, Lord. If tonight you find yourself entangled with, with stuff that you know is not in the Bible, maybe it's time to hear verse 16 and 17. Repent. Turn around. Go back to what you know to do so the Lord can bless you openly and outwardly and often. His ways are best, you know, because he's the way. He's the truth. And he's our life. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.